Berlin was very, you know, the startup culture was very dominated by Rocket Internet, uh, which are kind of uh, that type of entrepreneur. You know, I know from business school because we know kind of like in the whole business school, um, I guess, scene, you know, I, I know a few people who started working for Rocket Internet people and I just didn't like the culture. It was very, you know, militant. It was very kind of like growth at all costs, whatever. And I just didn't like it. Welcome back to Power Done Differently, the podcast that asks... What if there are everyday lion hearts living among us? What if they aren't white dudes in suits? And what if they can show us a better way? My guest this week is Lu Lai, founder and CEO of Blooming Founders, a London-based business incubation platform and support network for nurturing and scaling bootstrapped and often female-led businesses. Blooming Founders promotes a community, and I really love this, that puts kindness first, gives before it takes, promotes humility, and always keeps growing. Lou is also the author of Dear Female Founder, a collection of letters written by 66 female founders from 20 countries to their younger selves. Oh my God, I love that idea and I wish I'd had it. These letters offer advice they wish they'd had when they first started and has been featured in Forbes, Marie Claire, and the Huffington Post, just to name a few. So I love the ethos behind everything that Lou has done, but one of the reasons I really wanted to speak with her now is that her story is also about the determination and resilience of a serial entrepreneur, someone who's had to bounce back from setbacks. And isn't that a story we all need to hear after the last couple of years? Having to pivot and reinvent her own business after the pandemic She is now finding a new approach to investing in small businesses, one that she believes will help unlock a new wave of economic empowerment for those who need it most. Lu was born in the 1980s in China, but grew up mostly in Germany. Her father had been given an academic scholarship to do his PhD in West Germany, and at the time it was rare for anybody to be able to leave mainland China. Despite the opportunity, things were not easy. Her father's visa meant that neither he nor Lou's mother could work legally, requiring them, like so many other migrant families, to turn to low-paying jobs that paid cash in hand. Lou's entrepreneurial spirit was ignited early as she searched for ways to bring in extra income and forge some independence. Her first ventures were in Pokemon and Sailor Moon. So I think these two characters were pretty much me being entrepreneurial when I was a teenager without realizing I was being an entrepreneur. Um, Really, the real reason, like many, many teenage girls, is that I just didn't want my mom to buy me clothes anymore. And I wanted to buy my own clothes. For that, (laughs) I had to make money (laughs) to be able to afford my own clothes. So I was looking around in my room and say, okay, you know, what can I do? And it was 1999, so I'm probably giving my age away a little bit. (laughs) But uh, eBay arrived and I created an account in 1999 and you know, started putting stuff that I had in my room on on eBay in Germany. And lo and behold, I had no idea how well things would do. But the first auction I ever put on, I still remember it was a set of six trading cards um, of Sailor Moon. And I put it and we, we had Deutschmark at the time. There was not no euros, right? So Deutschmarks. And uh, I put it up for five Deutschmarks which is pretty much uh, two and a half euros, right? Or two pounds. And it sold for 36 so it sold for seven times more than I thought. 
And I was like, this is great. <laughs> so then I just did more of that, um, naturally. Lou would return to China to visit her grandmother in the summer holidays, picking up the cards for pennies and filling her suitcase with highly collectible editions not available in the West. Running this highly successful import business, she was still unaware she was laying the foundations for her future career. I never thought about entrepreneurship. I mean, like I literally just did it to, to buy clothes. <laughs> Very simple. <laughs> and I never thought myself as like an entrepreneur. As the only child of two traditional parents, Lou was living her life trying to achieve what other people expected from her, ticking a lot of boxes and focusing on her studies. Her parents wanted her to focus on getting good grades and a well-paid corporate job. She graduated from one of Germany's top business schools with distinction, and her CV read like a list of most desirable companies to work for. First McKinsey, and then P&G. Her parents were proud. Her, not so much. You know, I think it's one of those typical experiences where you enter business school and it's basically at the time, you know, I, I started uh, my studies in 2003. So it was either consulting or investment banking that, you know, a good business school students would pursue. So I had that notion of working for a big consulting firm for the time I was in business school. And, you know, and I prepared my whole kind of student career to get that job. I got the job and I was so happy about it, but I just had no idea what it actually really was. And there's only that much. I think consulting is one of these things that, you know, un until you actually get to experience it, like you actually don't really know what they're doing. Like you pretend you're knowing, you know, and when you go into interviews, you'd be like, I'm super analytical, like I love kind of you know, all the case studies <laughs> and all that. But, but really, you don't know what the actual job is like. And to me, it was too strategic, right? I didn't see like the impact of any of the work that I was doing. And it was also a bit of a bad time because I joined McKinsey in October 2008 when things were just kind of crashing down. So mm. then, you know, the whole sentiment was not great, you know, and um, I think I got a little bit of like the the bad side of things, basically. Right. And combined mm. with the fact that, you know, I like kind of like creating things and more tangible things. I think that's what I learned from that experience. Did people tell you you were crazy? Because I left consulting after business school, but I left before you got that next promotion to PM, which everybody was like, just stay for PM, just stay for PM. And I was like, I don't... In my case, I had another offer and it was kind of this... You know, it was just something I really, really wanted to do. And it was time sensitive. And I wanted, you know, it was in London. And it was like, look, I didn't go seeking this offer, but it came to me and I'm going to take it. But people said I was nuts. Did they say the same thing to you? Yeah, I think, you know, at the time, it was really not a good look to change jobs that quickly, basically. Right. Mm. And people were kind of like, why are you doing this? You have been like working so hard, like, you know, to kind of like, I literally, literally strategically prepared, you know, to get that job. Right. And, and then I got it. And then I was like, oh, not really what I thought it would be. And I'm not really happy here. I do think I'm a person that has a very strong intuition and I've always lived my life in a way where if I don't feel comfortable in the environment that I'm in, I'm going to change, you mm. know, and, and I always kind of like see whether something is in my control to change. If I don't like it, can I change something? Is it in my control? If I can't change it, I'm going to remove myself, right? Or I'm going to dial down my, my involvement, my energy. You know, sometimes you can't avoid it because you have to do it. But that was like the first time I felt, you know, within me that like I can't be in an environment and just kind of suck it up, basically. So she left consulting and tried her hand at another corporate job, 
this time working as a brand manager for the huge consumer goods company, Procter & Gamble, who make a lot of the products most of us use every single day. Things like Gillette razors or Dawn dish soap. I just felt that I needed that tangibility. Yet despite loving P&G, after four years, the internal politics that goes along with any corporate job started to wear her down. I thought this whole kind of politics thing, right, is not really what I like because, again, the process is out of my control. Like you're relying on your boss to present you in these meetings where they discuss about the talent and who they promote and who gets kind of placed into which department. And it's really his or her sort of responsibility or kind of agency to push you. And obviously not everybody is able to do that or is willing to do that because mm-hmm. maybe the leaders don't care as well, right? So again, I ran into a wall where things were out of my control and I didn't really like that. So I just made the decision to leave corporate in general and just basically started on my own as an entrepreneur because I just felt that things would just be more in my control. And, you know, if things go well, great. If things don't go well, I'm responsible and it's my job to fix it. So without much of a plan, she quit her job and began to look for opportunities to start her own business. But initially she felt out of place in Berlin's tech bro startup culture. Berlin was very, you know, the startup culture was very dominated by Rocket Internet, uh, which are kind of uh, that type of entrepreneur. You know, I know from business school, because we know kind of like in the whole business school, um, I guess, scene, you know, I, I know a few people who started working for Rocket Internet people, and I just didn't like the culture. It was very militant. It was very kind of like growth at all costs, whatever. And I just didn't like it. It took Lou two ventures and three years to find something she found meaningful and impactful enough to build and grow as a business. First, using her experience in brand marketing to help women who were struggling to get up the promotion ladder. Then a return to her consultancy roots when a chance meeting provoked a move to London. I had an idea, uh, which was providing consulting services and brand and marketing kind of, you know, customer acquisition um, strategy consulting to retailers around the Chinese market. Because I felt mm. that, okay, you know, I, I'm going to go back to like my consulting roots because I still kind of like like consulting in some sort of you know, way, but I also wanted to kind of like see the impact of my work, right? Mm-hmm. So at the time, there was a lot of press around the growth in Chinese outbound tourism and how much uh, they're spending, you know, across the globe. And obviously I have a branding background. So it's like, great, you know, we could help more retailers kind of promote their brands towards that demographic. And they would just obviously increase their revenues. Uh, So that was kind of the idea I had. And before I moved in 2014, in March, I went to the largest uh, tourism sort of convention called the World Travel Market. It happens every year in November in London. So I went there in 2013 and uh, tried to network. I met a lady who was running a travel marketing agency there randomly. I don't even, I don't remember how we met, but we somehow met (laughs) and uh, I was chatting with her and then we stayed in touch and she was uh, pitching Selfridges for a contract. And essentially she pitched us together. And that was pretty much my ticket. But then, you know, one year, fast forward, Selfridges is, is a very 
established brand in the UK, right? There's actually not that many people who work in the headquarters of Selfridges and they are quite traditional. They didn't really want to change. They want to understand what they had to do, but then they didn't really take any action on it. So then I was like, okay, I mean, there's not much else I can tell you basically, right? After one year, I pretty much told you everything that you could consider. So what's the point? Right. And (laughs) then on top of that, I learned that the tourism industry is quite a toxic industry. There's a lot of players within the industry that work on commission only. And if you work on commission only, you tend to be a bit more cutthroat. Right. Mm. Uh, so there were some things that were happening that were not kind of pleasant. We got threatened <laughs> by some people oh, wow. and you'd be like, what the hell is that? You know, what kind of threat spread rumors about, you know, how we're ripping off Chinese tourists and sh- spread it on Chinese social media or whatever. Right. Wow. And, uh, and these would be competitors. competitors yeah, exactly. Exactly. Competitors yeah. that, you know, they thought we would take away business from them, but really mm. we weren't i always think like the the pie is big enough and the pie is growing uh and then when it comes to chinese tourists the pie is definitely growing i mean there's more and more people traveling i mean not right now but in general at the time yeah. <laughs> there were yeah. more and more people before 2020 um, yeah <laughs> exactly lou realized that she had wasted a lot of time and money she realized that having a trusted network of women entrepreneurs Mentors who could share their wisdom and relate to the experience and the mistakes could have saved her from a lot of those early mistakes. But it didn't exist at the time. So she decided to create it. I started my own meetup group, actually, because I didn't know anybody in London when I moved there. So I was looking to kind of, you know, make some friends, also build my network. And as I was attending other people's events or meetups, you know, over time, it's pretty obvious is quite male dominated, right? When it comes to the entrepreneurial events. So then I started my own meetup group for entrepreneurial women that just kind of grew throughout the year. And by the time I kind of started questioning the whole consulting business, I had about 1,500 people, I think, in the group. And we were doing regular meetups, you know, just like in a bar somewhere in Soho. And um, I also started charging for tickets because I need to manage the attendance, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, in London, when you have like a free kind of like meetup, you get like 150 RSVPs well. and who knows <laughs> how many up. people. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and with some, you know, locations we had to manage, right? Because, you know, you don't want to run in a situation where then people do show up and you can't let them in because the location is at capacity, which also ha- happened, right? So then I started charging tickets, just like a fiver, not much at all, just to kind of like, you know, know how many people actually sh- show up. And mm. um, and I really enjoyed that, actually, meeting the people, like talking to them, like, you know, learning about everybody's businesses. And as I was doing that, I learned about their challenges, their struggles, what they were looking for. And I think this female entrepreneurship thing at the time in 2015 was very, very, like nobody was talked about it. It was like a non-topic, right? Mm. So I felt like I was a bit like, you know, innovating and just like exploring like new (laughs) horizons. And uh, yeah, so that's when I then made the decision to wind down the consulting company. And then I started uh, Blooming Founders full-time in August, 2015. So through your meetup group, you had already solved the problem of, you know, the network of other women entrepreneurs and getting together and sharing knowledge. What was your vision then next with Blooming Founders? How were you building upon that? The vision of Blooming Founders was to provide a incubation platform for female entrepreneurs 
Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of included different offerings. So obviously events. Then, um, you know, I published a book the next year. Then we opened a co-working space, right? So it was always kind of like around that sort of notion of helping female entrepreneurs build and grow their businesses through mm-hmm. a range of service offerings. And uh, yeah, so the, we started with events because I was, you know, what I was already doing with the meetup. We just transitioned into more content-led events, panels, workshops, you know, where people would learn like hard skills mm-hmm. for their business. Blooming Founders was hugely successful. Between 2015 and 2020, Lou built the largest network of female founders, advisors, and investors in London with over 6,000 members. She also started Startup in Bloom, the UK's first female-focused startup conference, which provided peer support, education, and opportunities to connect with investors and corporate leaders. Crucially, what set Blooming Founders apart was that while all of their offerings were female-focused, they were not female-only, creating a diverse and inclusive space for innovation across a range of industries. The focus was on creating a different kind of innovation culture. Less tech bro, work hard, play hard. More... Build great things with great people and look after yourself too. So Lou was off to an incredible start and going from success to success, she had plans to continue to expand. Then COVID hit. We basically hit a wall because obviously we just had to shut down. Mm. About 95% of our revenues came from, you know, events and the space. But I lost pretty much the business that I've built for five years last year in, uh, in March we waited for a couple of months to see maybe we open back up, right? Maybe we just have to, you know, sort of wait a little bit and things will be fine. Maybe, you know, the summer will be better because the virus, you know, doesn't like the heat. But <laughs> I think <laughs> wait, as in the beginning, there were so many theories and we were just holding out hope. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Nobody knew, right? It was so new. But like all great entrepreneurs, Lou didn't quit. She pivoted. You know, as the months passed by, it kind of became clear that the virus is not going anywhere. And we had to, you know, we had to do something else. So mm. I started a different service. We, we launched it under Blooming Founders and focused on students and graduates to connect them with startups and small businesses. So the startups and small businesses would hire essentially the, the students for internships. And uh, we would charge kind of like a monthly, um, so we had, it's a pay-as-you-go model. We charge mm-hmm. a monthly fee for uh, to, to the startups. So that's what I did last year because people still needed help. People still needed manpower or woman power to grow their businesses. And students were desperately looking for internships because everything got canceled last summer as well. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of interest on the student side. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, it's been going well. So we're still doing that. That's still actually our main cash flow, like today, because mm. I am now, uh, one year later, I finally managed to get the, gather the energy to kind of relaunch Blooming Founders and have a think about, okay, what are we going to do with it? And are, you know, are we coming back? What is going to be the brand? What is going to be our positioning? And, uh, we're actually changing a lot. The idea is to kind of, now champion bootstrapping businesses mm-hmm. of which most women are bootstrapping their businesses. Right. But again, it, it comes back to having control over what you do. Right. Because as you know, the funding gap, you know, in the startup ecosystem is horrific. And yeah. I tried to do something in that area for the last two years. We've done so many, you know, we pretty much invited any VC that exists in London to come in and do like pitching events or 
masterclasses and whatnot. We did a conference in 2019 with 26 funds. You know, I thought that, okay, I could maybe influence something in connecting people and educating the founders, but that's not enough because there's so much institutionalized bias uh, in the system that, you know, you're hitting a wall at some point, right? So as I was thinking about blooming founders, I really thought that, you know, I, the mission originally was to kind of help w- women business owners win, right? Build successful businesses. And they're somehow not winning because it's hard, right? And you're, you're bumping mm-hmm. against all these walls. And um, mm-hmm. so maybe we should focus at things that are in our control uh, and that, you know, we go back to building a business kind of like in the back in the 1950s, maybe, where it's all organic, where you have a long-term perspective. You know that as long as you're growing at a certain rate per year, you know, compound growth is all going to be fine. I think that's really interesting for so many reasons. I interviewed a woman not long ago called Divya Gugnani. She is the founder of a company called Wonder Beauty. And she's also an investor now. And she had a business that she sold successfully to QVC, had a couple of exits. But one of the points she made to me is that she knows, because she's seen it firsthand, that cash can cover up a lot of problems. You know, you throw enough money at marketing. If you have just unlimited amounts of cash, it can look like you have a really strong value proposition. But once that cash cow or that cash influx dries up, you're left with a business that doesn't actually resonate with people. And I think that in this kind of, I have a sense that in this kind of bro tech, culture, you just can throw lots of money at a business that may or may never be profitable. (laughs) It may never be profitable, but that cash influx makes it look like a better business than it might be. So I think that's one of the, the things that really interests me about this potential bootstrap model. And the other thing is that in this great reset of 2020, I think a lot of us are looking for a more human personal connection with the brands that we interact with and the people that we buy with, even down to, um, I should say, the people that we buy from, even down to where we get our food. I mean, I live now just outside of London, but I was living in Primrose Hill during the first half of the pandemic. And our favorite local restaurants started you know, running their own delis, essentially. And that became our favorite place to grow shopping. We would never go to like a big grocery store if we could avoid it. And I think that there's this kind of reset that's happening where people want a more individual interaction with the companies that they spend their money with. Yeah, I, I think so. I would agree with you. I think there's a trend overall kind of towards making business human again, because this whole fast growth uh, kind of notion is it's basically, it's very um, anonymous, basically, right? Like you are a user like of mm-hmm. an app, like that's what you are, you know? Mm-hmm. And a lot of um, people, I think, are maybe starting to realize now well, I think probably not. Maybe in the tech industry, people start to realize now, whenever a product is free, you are the product, right? So people are getting <laughs> your data. People are trying to kind of like analyze and like something from your behavior that they can sell on to somebody else, right? Like it, yes. like it doesn't work otherwise, right? If you're not paying, like you're the product. So you have to be okay with that, right? And I think the more people start to realize these things, and uh, when they do value their privacy or they do value kind of like, okay, where d- does my money go? Uh, they will choose to 
work with or this is you know give their money to businesses that are a bit more human where you know they can they understand like the motivations that are like you know that show integrity that are transparent and uh, all of these things i i believe now we have to be careful because marketing obviously ruins everything all the time right so <laughs> you know it's very common for brands to hijack any movement Right. I mean, there's greenwashing, femme washing, like, like all of these things. Right. So we have to be a bit more careful in that as well. But I overall think that the consumer is getting more sophisticated and people like to shop small, especially after the pandemic when a lot of people realized, mm-hmm. oh my God, so many small businesses are at risk and the government is not helping. You know, if I can do something, then I'll be happy to, to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, I guess the other aspect that strikes me about why this might be so important, particularly when it comes to women, is again, with this kind of the tech boom that we've been in for almost a generation at this point, not quite. I think there is potentially a feeling that exacerbates imposter syndrome, which is like, unless you have a multi-million, hundreds of millions, you know, seed fund, uh, seed funding, or you're able to have an exit at like 500 million or something, you're not a real entrepreneur. Yeah. But actually if you are able to build a business that employs some people, puts food on your table, I mean, that is hard and that is worthy of your time. And so there's also, I think, a messaging. And I I don't know, I haven't seen any data on this, but my suspicion would be, my hypothesis would be, if I go back to my consulting days, my hypothesis would be that women feel this more acutely because we know that we are affected more by this imposter syndrome. But I think also this whole notion of like women are getting funding is also not really helpful because the more people talk about it, the more actually, you know, then women start to think, well, it's almost impossible basically. Right. Mm. Uh, And it can go two ways. One way would be, I'm not going to even try. And the other way is like, oh, you know, if I do try and they reject me, it's because they don't fund any women. Right. So then they put Mm -hmm. themselves into that victim sort of spot, which also is not great. It's tricky, right? Because obviously we all want to change and how can you create change if you don't really talk about it, right? But then if you do (laughs) talk about it, there are consequences, right? And I've seen those consequences over the last three years where I have been really kind of like into this whole funding gap, gender funding gap topic. It's really, really complex and I don't really have, um, well, actually I do have a solution. So my solution (laughs) is to actually leverage the power of bootstrapping businesses because it's still like the majority of how the GDP is made up, right? I mean, Mm. again, 95% of all the headlines are startups because it's like funky and, and, uh, you know, sort of somewhat desirable, but people don't realize that 95% of the GDP are not startups, Right. Mm-hmm. So I really feel that everybody can, like, if you feel passionate about the gender funding gap, combine maybe with imposter syndrome, right? I think there's a lot of women who could be angel investors who are not angel investors because they think mm. that it's going to take thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of pounds. But actually, you know, in the pre-seed seed stage, a lot of founders are happy to take, you know, 5K or something or sometimes even less right? If you're part of like of a group or something like that. So it might be like 2K. I literally have seen mm. people putting 2K into a startup, right? And, and they're on the cap table. Mm-hmm. So my m- suggestion to kind of help solve the problem is not to try to raise a fund from LPs because you're, you know, sort of hitting the same walls, right? Because those guys will, or, or 
I guess guys, because there, there will be mostly guys, <laughs> uh, be Oof. looking at a return and your track record and all of these things. But my suggestion is, how about we, as business owners, we focus on bootstrapping, profitability, margins, and all of these nice financial measures. And we dedicate a certain percentage of our net profits to angel investment, for example. Right. Mm. Last year in 2020, there has been a new product called a rolling fund. It's been launched by Angels List. It's a very, very interesting product because it means that you can invest into startups without having to raise the full fund upfront, which has been the case before. Right. So you have to do a lot of, you know, sort of pitching and lobbying and trying to kind of gather that money. And the fund economics wouldn't work until you hit like 30 million or 50 million, right? But with the rolling fund, you could kind of come together as a syndicate and you just basically commit to deploying like a certain amount or maybe not, but you know, maybe as a syndicate, maybe it doesn't have to be even individual on an individual level, like uh, commitment wise, but you just basically deploy like a certain amount of money, like every quarter or every six months or something like that, right? And as you deploy that money, you start to invest, you try to deploy the money into startups, right? So in my mind, right, like I'm happy to commit 5%, right? Which I'm kind of like, okay, well, you know, it's kind of just like an extra mm -hmm. expense category, let's say. Um, people can do 3%, 1%, more than 5% up to them, right? But ideally, I would love to build a network of business owners that agree to, to kind of doing the same thing. And then over time, you know, our 5, 3, 1, 7% kind of pool together could be a good start of a rolling fund, for example, right? And mm -hmm. then, you know, things are in our control. You're not kind of stretching yourself over too much, right? And you just basically do these things as you do business, you know, your everyday business, and you're still starting to change the needle, right? Because the amount of money that goes into non-white uh, male <laughs> founding teams is so small that even if the start capital is small, you will still start to make a difference. That is, I think, such a critical point, right? You look at the at the millions and billions and trillions going into male white male founded companies and you think how could i possibly compete with that with my 2k my 5k my 10k or whatever it might be but exactly the point that you've just made because there is so little investment in women owned minority owned businesses you can make a huge difference with such a small amount of money and it's I think it's absolutely brilliant to pool those resources together for a couple of reasons. A, the point we just made and how, how much of a difference it can make in the market. But also specifically, there's another area that I see and I have learned about a lot doing this podcast and interviewing people, which is women seem to be a little bit later to the game when it comes to personal finance. Oh, totally. Right? Oh, my God. That's like right? a whole like, different area. <laughs> It's a whole different it's a whole different area, but it's so important. Like I think that a lot of women who are professional and educated get there eventually, but because of the miracle of compounding interest, the later you get there, the you know, it can really, really influence the results. So if we can educate younger women who are just starting out in this entrepreneurial journey or whatever to say, listen, and also you've got to learn how to get your money working for you, and it ain't gonna be sitting in your bank account earning 0.001%. Yeah, I mean that's not where to put your money, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it solves it helps solves both sides of that equation, which I think is really powerful. No, completely, and and actually, you know, definitely young women, but also 
middle-aged, quote-unquote, right, uh, women, um, because women are going to inherit more money than ever in the next, like, two decades, basically. Like, mm. it's going to be massive. It literally is going to be trillions, right? And is, why, is, why is the inheritance different now? Can you tell us why are women standing to inherit all of this money that we didn't in generations past? Because people have been building wealth, right, over the last kind of like decades. I mean, people in the, the 60s and 70s just kind of, you know, what, what would they inherit, right? I mean, there was like two world wars before. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and, and, you know, over the last kind of like 50, 60 years, there has been a lot of, you know, kind of businesses being built, wealth being created, et cetera, et cetera. Women live longer. So, you know, we're more likely mm-hmm. to inherit stuff from also, you know, as um, a widow or, you know, just from other people. Right. And, and I do think that there are a lot of women with a lot of savings in their bank accounts and they are not utilizing the power of that capital because they somehow just feel a bit shy when it comes to the personal finance topic. Right. I mean, we have been, I have been growing up in a saving kind of like mindset, right? Like you put your money away, you know, you have an interest rate and well, now you don't have an interest rate anymore. So, you know, what do you do? And I think a lot of people kind of take that risk and start their own businesses. They typically don't pay themselves, you know, (laughs) for the first kind of couple of years, right? They start to pay everybody else apart from themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They start paying into their pensions, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. And, you know, if you kind of like think about it in the grand scheme of things, I actually think that this is not, uh, you know, not, not great. Right. Uh, and I don't think that we talk about that enough. And it's interesting because for Blooming Founders, the new Blooming Founders, you know, it's really about how are you making money? How can you make more money leveraging online business and also passive income streams and just kind of like be smart about things, but also how can you build long-term wealth, Right which is mm-hmm. really has like a, this long-term perspective, very much like compound, like compound growth, compound interest. It's all the same things. I think for some reason we got into probably accustomed by all of these social media apps for instant gratification. What's the latest? <laughs> what's new? I want things now. I want to kind of blow up in the next kind of like six months, right? And that's why I need to raise capital and all of mm-hmm. these things. There is a place for that, for sure. But I think the majority of the business space is actually not that model and people can do very well, you know, by just kind of consistently growing, for example, and then with the money that they're earning to then invest in, you know, ETFs or stocks or, I mean, crypto, woo, a new topic, <laughs> right? Or real estate or whatever it is, right? That they want yeah. to invest in startups, right? Angel investments. Yeah, it's, I totally agree with you. We don't talk enough about that. Women don't engage enough about with it. And we actually sit on so much capital that is essentially idle and could be put to good use to further innovation, to help build wealth for yourself, Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you want to do with 0.01% on your interest. bank account? Yeah. Right? And, well, I, mean, um, you're, I mean, you're earning negative interest at the end of the day because it's, exactly. not, it's not pacing inflation, which is, I mean, it's a whole different thing. This is why crypto has taken off so much. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. a big problem to solve. And I think it come, goes back to the media, right? Like, you know, it's a kind of how did it happen that everybody wants to go, to go into startups now, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when I graduated from business school, it was McKinsey, Goldman Sachs that people wanted to join. And now it's a VC. And I'm kind of like, 
I mean, I know how clueless I was as a 25-year-old McKinsey, like really, <laughs> right? I can't, Im- but at least I had like loads of data to crunch through on industries and all of that stuff. How on earth can you be, I just don't get it, to be honest, like, because it's just going to further the whole bias systems because as mm-hmm. a new associate in a VC firm, clearly you have no clue. So you learn from everybody else, right? So you learn the existing biases and like the everything that's really wrong in the system you have to learn because that's just how the way it goes right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. might have never started a business on your own so you had no idea what entrepreneur really means and there you go you know g- getting into this gatekeeping position of talking to founders and trying to deploy the capital i think it's really really kind of odd that this phenomenon has been happening. And I mean, joining a VC is probably like the number one sort of job for MBAs right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, startup, anything related to startup or tech is the new, is the new sexy. And I also think there's another thing at play here, which is MBAs still want to make a lot of money. I mean, who doesn't, right? But they still want to make a lot of money, but they don't I shouldn't say they don't. Plenty still want to go into investment banking, but fewer want to trade hundreds of life hours to do it, right? You look at the working culture of Goldman Sachs and you're like, if I'm if I'm literally working, going on three or four hours of sleep at night, every single night, um, that's going to take a toll. And I feel like people are a little bit more aware of that. And they think that they can hedge those things, right? Still make the money, work yeah. in the sexy industry, but maybe have a better work-life balance at a VC. Well, I guess at a VC, yes, because you're like the capital. And, you know, as a as a founder, it's as bad as as Goldman Sachs, basically. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. except that you don't have an assistant anymore, and you have to literally <laughs> do everything on your own. I mean, <laughs> it's actually a step down, and you're not paying yourself, so like you still work 100 hours a week. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe potentially a bigger upside, but yeah, yeah no. I no, but it's exactly right. So that's why people do it because they're like, oh my God, I'm going to be able to make millions in like five to seven years, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Or 10 years. And mm-hmm. then you look at it and you'd be like, well, if you were to just invest in an ETF for like 30 years, like you'll probably make your millions as well. And you don't really have to stress out about anything. Yeah. Yeah. Passive income is the holy grail, right? I mean, that is the holy grail. I had... um. When I was younger and earlier on in my career, we shared an office with a private equity firm and I had lunch with, this is back in 2008. So the market was really volatile at Mm -hmm. that stage, as we all know. Um, And it was when I I first moved back to America after living in Europe for a long time and I just started to invest. This is when you really couldn't, at least I wasn't aware of a lot of easy online retail investing options in Mm -hmm. Europe, but they they were already... You know, you could definitely already do them in the States. So I started to play around with stocks and I made a a pretty decent return, like around 20% on a really short city trade. And I, of course, was like lamenting because it went up afterwards. Right. And it was, it's just, I was having lunch with this, the owner of the PE firm. And he said, I was so young then, you know, but he said, Cassandra, nobody ever went broke taking a profit. (laughs) Never, ever, ever regret taking a profit. And that little nugget of investment advice has stuck with me since all those years ago. And it's, that's kind of how I'm guided now that I, okay, I, try to make, I try to make investments that are going to give me a healthy return, but I'm not looking to become a billionaire next year or next month because that's how people lose their shirt. That's how you lose your shirt. And yeah, there'll be one lucky son of a bitch, but the rest of the other people are just broke because they, 
you know, they chased, uh, they chased it with this like YOLO, you only live one step. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and we have seen that recently with GameStop and all of that, right. Mm-hmm. It's been, um, yeah, the market's right now, like really interesting. I mean, yeah, it's pulled back quite a lot right now, but guess the correction was due. So yeah, do? we'll see. We'll see. Okay. So I'd like to switch gears and close up on our quick fire ish round, if that's mm-hmm. okay. What's one lesson you've learned the hard way? Business-wise, I would definitely say focus on margins, which I haven't done in the first five years. I was more focused on growth instead. What don't women talk enough about? Finance, money, how to make money, how to make more money, how to kind of invest money. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you've since changed your mind about? I would say I used to love the startup ecosystem and growth opportunities and all that. And I think where I really changed my mind last year is that there are, it's much more feasible uh, to build wealth long-term than trying to become a unicorn in the next five years. What unearned privilege or unfair advantage has been most instrumental to your success so far? I would say my education. I uh, got my education in Germany, which luckily was free. Otherwise, I would not have imagined that my immigrant parents would have afforded very much for me. And mm. because of my academic achievements, I was able to attend a really good business school and get onto the professional path I went on. That's very topical at the moment with the cost of university, both obviously in the States, just out of control, but you know, the UK following closely behind. Mm-hmm. What are you still insecure about? I still have this innate feeling that I'm not good enough for a lot of different things. And, you know, there's many people I'm trying to overcome that, but I feel that I have, I'm very ambitious and I always have this feeling I will never get there. The process is the point sometimes. Exactly. I'm trying to learn that. (laughs) (laughs) When do you feel you're most powerful? When I am in control of things. It's been a big theme Mm. in my life when I feel I can call the shots when I can see the results of my work. And uh, that's where I feel best at. Last question. What are you really fucking good at? A lot of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which one do I pick? I think I'm very good at understanding people and what they need, what triggers them and creating products and services that fulfill those needs. Lou, if people want to learn more about you, about Blooming Founders, about how to connect with other bootstrapping entrepreneurs, where should they go? Probably best to connect with me on LinkedIn at the moment. So if you Google Luli and Blooming Founders, then you'll find me on LinkedIn. Uh, we'd love to connect. And uh, bloomingfounders.com is uh, the, the website for Blooming Founders. Thanks to everyone for listening. If meeting these women is valuable to you, I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help us reach more incredible women to introduce you to. My hope is to elevate you and a lot of women just like you into power and to help us use that power to elevate others. Until next time, stay curious. Stay brave and keep making good trouble.